When we think of slavery in the United States, we think of plantations in the rural South. Those two things are inextricably linked in the popular imagination of that time period. And I mean, they kind of should be, right? It was the South, after all, who built an economic and social system so dependent on slavery that they basically started a suicidal war in order to try and preserve it. Here in the North, on the other hand, and especially here in New York City, we've always just been a bit more... What's the word? Enlightened than that. We are not like those dumb hicks down in Alabama. Racism has just never been our shtick, you know? We would never perpetuate so barbaric an institution. That is a story we like to tell ourselves. Most people would probably be very surprised to find out that in 1790, a higher percentage of white families owned slaves in Brooklyn than in South Carolina. And unfortunately, that's really just the tip of the iceberg. From New York City's founding by the Dutch in 1624, all the way up until the Civil War, both slavery itself and trade with slave-based societies played an indispensable role in transforming NYC into the thriving metropolis we know and love today. In this episode, I'll be taking a closer look at this criminally neglected chapter in our city's history. Many of you probably already know that the first enslaved Africans were brought to Virginia in 1619. That date has pretty much been etched into everyone's memory by now. But one often overlooked detail is the fact that the ships carrying these slaves were not English, but Dutch. You see, the 17th century Dutch were some greedy motherfuckers, and they were good at it too. They had an extremely profitable commercial empire, and they didn't really care what they had to do to make money, including if that meant buying and selling their fellow human beings. The Dutch West India Company came to dominate the transatlantic trade in the 17th century, replacing the Portuguese, and their main business was with the booming sugar economies of Brazil and the West Indies, where they were the main supplier of basically every material that was essential for those economies to function, especially enslaved people. To maintain this trade network, the West India Company set up factories, which were not actually factories, they were more like half military base and half trading outposts. Anyways, they built a ton of them on both sides of the Atlantic. The most important ones were in West Africa, where Dutch merchants traded all kinds of nifty Dutch manufactured goods to local rulers in exchange for enslaved prisoners of war. New Amsterdam, founded in 1624, was really just a mostly forgotten bumfuck outpost on the far northern edge of this trade network. Just a couple ships might stop by there every year to reload on their way to the West Indies, maybe trap a few beavers, or sell some guns and crockery to the Iroquois. Like all the other Dutch factories, New Amsterdam relied on menial labor from slaves, who made up around a fifth of the city's population. Most of these slaves came from Portuguese Angola, which was occupied by the Dutch at the time. We can see this in the fact that the records show that most slaves had names like Paulo d'Angola, Catalina von Angola, Anthony Angola, Simon Congo, Anthony Portuguese, Big Manuel, Little Manuel, and John Francisco. Now some of these enslaved people belonged to farming families in villages near New Amsterdam, but most of them were property of the West India Company, which governed New Amsterdam as a company town. The slaves were called up whenever there was a road to be built, or a forest to be cleared, or maintenance to be done on the fortifications, pretty much anything you can imagine. 
Pretty much all the important structures in colonial Manhattan, the roads, the forts, the housing, the canals, everything, was all built primarily by these company slaves. When there wasn't any of this work to be done, which was actually fairly often, they might work for wages around the town so they could save up for some property of their own. Some of them were able to work their way up to something called half-freedom, in which they were given small tracts of land and compensated for any future work for the company, but they had to pay the company tribute each year and their children remained enslaved. Slaves were often given half-freedom when they got too old and the company didn't want to pay to take care of them anymore. The area around Houston Street was known as the Negro's Lots because lots of successful half-free black people owned their own farms there. So yeah, slavery in New Amsterdam was nowhere near as bad as slavery in the sugar plantations of Brazil and the West Indies. But it was still slavery. There is no erasing that. These people had been snatched from their homes and taken across the ocean in ships where they were packed together like sardines in a can and spent weeks chained down, laying in their own feces, subsisting on nothing but stale bread and never seeing the sun. Once they arrived in North America, they were forever separated from their original homes and families and made the property of a giant corporation. But still, it could have been much worse. And it did get much worse after the English conquered New Amsterdam in 1664. You see, under Dutch law, enslaved people were still people. They could, and often did, own property, work for wages in their free time, and sue white people who mistreated them. Under English law, they didn't enjoy even these minuscule rights. So from 1664 onward, the nature of slavery in New York underwent some major changes. From here on out, most slaves were brought over not by the Dutch West India Company, but by the British Royal Africa Company. And they came not from Portuguese Angola, but from the Igbo, Ashanti, and Yoruba peoples of present-day Ghana and Nigeria. With the West India Company gone, ownership of human beings now shifted from public to private. Most black people now worked as farmhands for middle-class Dutch farmers in villages outside the city like Flatbush, Bushwick, New Utrecht, and Harlem. A smaller number ended up working on the estates of New York City's growing Anglo-Dutch elite. For example, Lewis Morris bought 19,000 acres of land in West the South Bronx, whereas hundreds of slaves grew food to export to the West Indies, where it was used to feed, you guessed it, other slaves. You ever wondered why so many places in the Bronx are named Morris something? Morris Park, Morris Heights, Morrisania? It's because of this guy. His family was a big deal in New York for a very long time. Another family who was a very big deal were the Schuylers. Yes, those Schuylers from Hamilton. They were another dynasty who owned hundreds of slaves on their estates in the Hudson Valley, and they had those slaves grow food to export to the West Indies. This kind of thing was fairly unusual, though. Unlike in the South, slaves in New York weren't typically owned in large concentrations. The ownership of humans was much more spread out, typically just one or two per household. The very rich had enslaved house servants. Shipping merchants had enslaved dock workers. Coppers, butchers, blacksmiths, and other tradesmen had enslaved assistants. It was actually pretty difficult to make it in one of these trades if you didn't own anybody. By the middle of the 18th century, one-fifth of all New Yorkers were enslaved, and nearly half of white families owned at least one human being. Nowhere else in the North came even close to this. And the only city in the entire 13 colonies that had a higher rate than this 
was Charleston. Yeah, that Charleston. The fact that slaves tended to be owned in such small concentrations meant that the nature of slavery in NYC was quite different from the nature of slavery in the South. For one, it meant that most slave owners didn't own enough people to do all the work for them, so you often had slaves and the families who owned them working side by side in the fields. It also meant that instead of living in slave quarters, most enslaved people lived in the same houses as their masters, albeit in the crappiest bed in the crappiest room. They often even ate dinner together. So what this level of familiarity meant was that the slaves were almost like an additional member of the master's family, but definitely not an equal one, almost like a pet. They were often treated like a dog that was slightly more intelligent and a lot more useful when it came to making the family money. And as humiliating as the way they were talked to might have been, there wasn't a whole lot enslaved people could do. This was the fate they'd been assigned in life, to live with some random white family and help them make a little bit more money off their crops while they treated you like a dog. The spread out nature of slave ownership in New York also meant that it was much harder for enslaved people to maintain a sense of community than it was in the South, where they often lived in massive plantations containing tens or even hundreds of different slaves. In NYC, on the other hand, about half of slaveholding families only owned one person, and for that one person, you can imagine their life would have been pretty lonely. This was exacerbated by the fact that meetings of more than three slaves from different masters were prohibited on the grounds that they might be used to organize uprisings. If you were caught talking to their neighbor's slave, you might get whipped. The only real community gatherings that black people were allowed were funerals. These took place at the Negro's burial ground near Chambers Street, where they buried their dead in traditional West African customs, which freaked the shit out of white people. White people were also freaked out by the fact that they seemed to take so much pleasure in the fact that their friend had died. They were basically doing the coffin dance meme. During funerals, they sang and danced and drank and partied like there was no tomorrow. Based on this, some people came to the conclusion that black people didn't value human life. But that wasn't the case. You see, it's not every culture where a funeral is a somber occasion. There are some parts of the world where it's considered an occasion for a good time. And for black people in 18th century New York, it had to be. This was the only time they got to hang out. So they tried to have as much fun as they possibly could in that limited time. The fears that gatherings like these would be used to organize uprisings was confirmed in 1712, when around 20 enslaved Ashanti decided to fight for their freedom. They burned down a building and killed nine white people before being captured by the state militia. One of the ringleaders was sentenced to be roasted over a slow fire, quote, in torment for eight or ten hours and continue burning in the said fire until he be dead or consumed to ashes. Another was sentenced, quote, to be hung up in chains alive and so continue without any sustenance until he be dead, unquote. The long-term consequence of this revolt was that the daily activities of both slaves and free blacks were now policed more than ever. From here on out, they would not even be allowed to gather at funerals. And in 1714, a law was passed that prohibited people of color from owning land full stop. 
as big a deal as it was, it wasn't really slavery itself that made the wheels of New York City's capitalist economy go round and round. The real gold mine was the triangle trade, which essentially worked like this. Slaves were brought from Africa to the West Indies to work for sugar plantations for three years, die a painful death, and then be replaced by more African slaves. The sugar was then sent to port cities like Liverpool or Bordeaux, where it gets refined, processed, and sold for a massive profit. Then, nifty manufactured goods were sent from these cities to Africa to trade to local rulers for more slaves, and round and round and round until everyone was dizzy. New York City was one of the port cities on the northern end of this trade network, and just like under the Dutch, trade with the West Indies was a crucial part, probably the crucial part, of its economy. Now though, this trade had become more profitable than ever, and it was the British who dominated it instead of the Dutch. They didn't call sugar the white gold for no reason. The amounts of wealth it generated had previously been almost unimaginable, both from its direct sales and from the boost that it gave to industries like agriculture, shipbuilding, slave trading, sugar refining, and all kinds of manufacturing. These industries turned sleepy coastal towns into bustling seaports, the most important being Liverpool, Bristol, Lisbon, Bordeaux, Nantes, Boston, and of course, NYC. The Hudson Valley, just upriver, supplied lumber and foodstuffs to the West Indies, making its landed aristocracy just as wealthy and entrenched as the one in the South, families I was telling you about like the Morrises and the Schuylers. Other families, like the Van Cortlands, Livingstons, and Roosevelts, yeah, those Roosevelts, Teddy and FDR, made their fortune with sugar refineries. Most importantly, trade with the West Indies made Lower Manhattan Seaport absolutely thrive. You see, the reason why NYC became so successful in the first place is that it has pretty much the ideal natural harbor. It's surrounded by land on all sides, it's very deep so huge ships can fit in there, and it's right at the mouth of the Hudson River, which like I mentioned, was very important. As a result, by the 1720s, New York was no longer a forgotten fur trading outpost. It was now the second largest city in all of British North America, and its seaport was constantly bustling with ships coming in to unload slaves and sugar and take out manufactured goods and foodstuffs. Not all of these ships came in legally. In spite of Britain's best efforts to monopolize trade, American merchants still constantly found back channels to do business with the French West Indies, which were even more profitable than the British ones. Now, as profitable as the triangle trade was, being so dependent on it also meant that New York City was very vulnerable to fluctuations in the global trade market. One of these fluctuations came in 1740, when one of Britain's regularly scheduled wars with France and Spain made global commerce go all kerflui. This sent New York City into a particularly bad economic depression. Times became especially tough for poor whites, who had a difficult time getting jobs as it was because potential employers could just buy slaves instead. And just to throw a little salt in the wound, the winter of 1740-1741 is one of the coldest on record. Those were some long, dark, cold months, and it made New Yorkers psychologically as well as economically depressed. The economic depression also made fuel scarce, so it was difficult for New Yorkers to start fires to keep themselves warm. So a group of enslaved people said, alright, you want fire? We'll give you fire. In March of 1741, they set fire to a building near Trinity Churchyard that quickly spread and burned down several entire blocks. 
Their plan was to use this fire to create some pandemonium and then escape while the white people were distracted, but unfortunately, one of them was caught in the act, and soon, people were going around the city shouting the Negroes are rising. This was a godsend for drama's star of New Yorkers. It finally gave them someone they could take out all their anger on. And why stop at the people who actually started the fires? The press soon inflated this into a massive conspiracy between blacks, poor whites, and Catholics to burn down the city and hand it over to the French, who remember, Britain was at war with at the time. Paranoid masters started turning in their slaves to be interrogated. Hundreds of people were tried for participation in this alleged conspiracy, and many of them were tortured into confessions using hot coals. In the end, 17 blacks and 5 whites were executed over this conspiracy that most of them had nothing to do with. It was basically the NYC version of the Salem Witch Trials. In the aftermath of this scare, New York merchants switched to mostly importing female slaves because they viewed the men as overly aggressive. The male proportion of NYC's black population declined from 54% in 1737 to 47% in 1746. Slavery in general began losing a little bit of clout in New York during this time period. Once the economy picked back up, so did immigration from the British Isles, especially Northern Ireland, which made cheap white labor more abundant. By 1770, the enslaved proportion of New York's population had decreased from 21% to 14%, despite the absolute number of slaves increasing to 3,000. The white population was just growing that fast. Now, as I've said before, NYC's rapid growth was very dependent on its trade with the slave economies of the West Indies, including the French islands like Haiti and Martinique, which were quite a bit more profitable than the British ones like Jamaica and Barbados. Now this was of course illegal because it went against Britain's policy of trying to keep trade within its own empire as much as possible. But Americans hate being told what to do, especially if what they're told to do gets in the way of making that sweet, sweet money. So, not only did they consistently avoid paying British duties and tariffs, they also had an affair with France behind Britain's back. Britain had pretty much ignored this affair for more than a century because they simply had bigger fish to fraud. But, after defeating France in the Seven Years' War, Britain finally decided they were tired of getting cucked. They decided they were trying to assert some real authority over their North American colonies. So in 1764, Parliament passed the Sugar Act, which essentially said, hey, you know those rules about how you have to trade with British colonies? We're actually going to start enforcing them now. To that end, thousands of new customs officials were sent to American ports. Parliament even tried to sweeten the pot by actually reducing the duties on sugar in the hopes that more Americans would pay them. But Americans were having none of it. It was a principle of the thing that mattered. The backlash against the Sugar Act was so widespread that it was repealed only a year later. And still, that was not enough to keep those pesky Americans in line. The merchants of Boston and New York pushed so strongly for independence, not only because they wanted to continue their affair with France, but also because if America became independent, if they broke off their official relationship with Britain, then they could truly be economic sluts and trade with whoever they wanted. 
Merchants wanted to be independent from Britain so they could break off from its mercantilist economic system and do business with all the profitable sugar slave economies, whether they were British, Spanish, Dutch, French, or Portuguese. Still, this sentiment was much stronger in places like Boston and Philadelphia than it was in NYC. As much as New Yorkers hated British trade restrictions, when it came to the question of outright independence, they mostly remained loyal to the British crown. So most of them weren't all that upset when, in the summer of 1776, a massive British army landed in Brooklyn, kicked George Washington's ass, chased him up Manhattan and across the Hudson River, and made New York City into the central hub for all operations in North America. New York quickly became filled with loyalist refugees from across the colonies, swelling its population from 24,000 to 33,000 in just two years and making much of the city squalid and overcrowded. A good many of these refugees were actually fugitives from slavery, who the British promised freedom if they would fight for them. Only if their masters were rebels, of course. More than half of the enslaved populations of Long Island and Westchester County escaped to British-occupied NYC, while most of them enlisted in one of the British Army's several black regiments. In 1783, when the British finally surrendered and the victorious Americans re-entered New York, American General George Washington and British General Guy Carleton met in a tavern on Broad Street to discuss the terms of surrender. Washington tried to convince Carleton to return the 2,000 fugitives who fought for the British Army into slavery. But, to his credit, Carleton refused to do so, saying it would be a betrayal of his promise of freedom. When the British evacuated the city, the 2,000 freedmen went with them, mostly settling in Nova Scotia or taking up lives at sea. New York recovered surprisingly quickly from the war's destruction, largely thanks to its connections with the slave economies of the West Indies. These connections had been temporarily cut off during the Revolutionary War, and that was very bad for everyone. The British blockade of the North American coastline meant that cheap grain and lumber from the Hudson Valley could no longer be exported to the West Indies, which meant that West Indian plantation owners had to buy much more expensive stuff from Europe. This, of course, cut into their profits, and those cold, calculating plantation owners made up for that loss in profit by not feeding their slaves. Between 1776 and 1783, around 20,000 enslaved people in the West Indies starved to death. So needless to say, when the war ended, the white elite of the West Indies was very eager to get back to doing business with the United States. Britain tried to punish their rebellious ex-colonies by forcing the West Indies to trade with Canada instead, but Canada just could not satisfy their needs. This policy ended up hurting the British West Indies way more than it hurt the Americans who kept on smuggling but now charged higher prices. When war broke out with France in 1794, Britain finally faced the facts and repealed these restrictions. The Caribbean now became even more dependent on the United States and particularly on New York City because unlike British or French ships, American ships could come and go without worrying about being attacked. Well, mostly. New York City's merchants profited immensely from their ability to trade with both sides. New York's shipping industry absolutely boomed, and that boom led to corresponding booms in the rest of the city's economy. 
By 1800, New York had firmly established itself as the economic capital of the United States, blowing Boston and Philadelphia out of the water. In addition to the old Anglo-Dutch aristocracy I told y'all about earlier, NYC became the center of America's new money elite. Many of these nouveau riche New Yorkers decided to spend their money on domestic slaves, which back then was just about the biggest status symbol there was. If you were a fuckboy in the 1790s and you were trying to flex your money, you had to pull up in your horsey carriage and show off your designer brand slaves. In addition to this, the successful slave rebellion in Haiti caused nearly all the colony's white population to flee, tragically forced to leave their plantations behind and take only their most prized slaves with them. Many of these innocent victims ended up in New York, along with their human property. Because of these two factors, between 1790 and 1800, the number of slave-owning households in NYC tripled, and as of 1800, around three-quarters of all slave owners in NYC had purchased their human property in the past 10 years. But oddly enough, at the same time, the proportion of white families who owned slaves had plummeted from nearly one-half in the middle of the 18th century to only one-fifth at the beginning of the 19th. A lot of this decline simply had to do with the rapid growth of the white population. After the revolution, working-class whites from New England started pouring into the city to work on its booming dockyards. Most of these guys resented slavery, both as immoral and as unfair competition in the labor market. At the same time, New York City's elite was beginning to turn against the very institution they had used so heavily for so long. One play in 1789 at the very bougie John Street Theater ended with a surprisingly radical epilogue calling out the hypocrisy of Americans for yapping about freedom while still owning slaves. Shall freedom's sons on others put the chain? Detested thought! Soon may we hope to see Colombia, Europe, Asia, Africa, free! One genius reigns through all, eternal liberty. This epilogue drew a thundering ovation from the wealthy audience. You see, contrary to popular belief, abolitionist sentiment was very strong in the period after the Revolutionary War, and most northern states abolished slavery shortly after independence. New York, unsurprisingly, was the second to last to do so. Last was New Jersey, because of course it was. The New York Manumission Society was founded in 1785 to advocate the abolition of slavery in New York, and it had a pretty impressive cast of members, including Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and Governor DeWitt Clinton. More than half of the members of this organization, believe it or not, owned slaves themselves. So if you think Thomas Jefferson was the only guy who was a massive hypocrite about this issue, think again. It should also be noted that even if they advocated for abolitionism in their own state, wealthy New Yorkers were keeping very quiet about the fate of the much worse treated slaves in the West Indies because the blood, sweat, and tears of those guys on the sugar plantations was absolutely critical for New York City's prosperity. Nonetheless, the Manumission Society did get some things done. Its first big accomplishment was the repeal of a law that required slave owners to continue paying for the living expenses of any slave they set free, which was obviously a big incentive not to free anybody. Without this burden, 
many people actually did free their slaves in the coming decade, for both moral and economic reasons. There was also a third reason, and that was fear, because news of the Haitian Revolution scared the piss out of slave owners the world over. Many people decided it would simply be safer to let their human property go before they ended up with a knife in their back. As a result, by 1800, more than half of black people in New York City were free. Since they were still excluded from the rest of society, free blacks stuck together and maintained a strong sense of community, with churches being the biggest gathering spaces. Unsurprisingly, these guys were very determined to help out their brothers who were still in chains. They voraciously attacked slavery in their church sermons and helped hundreds of slaves escape to the nearby free states in New England. In 1799, the efforts of all these activists finally paid off when the New York State Legislature introduced a gradual emancipation bill. The only noticeable opposition to this bill came from the Dutch farming villages of Brooklyn, Queens, and the Hudson Valley, where, in many cases, as many as three-quarters of the white population owned slaves. One state senator recalled, quote, The Dutchmen raved and swore by dunder and blixen that we were robbing them of their property. We told them that they had none and could hold none in human flesh, and we passed the law. Unquote. So, hooray! We can end the episode now, right? Slavery is over, right? Wrong. Remember, this was a gradual emancipation bill, gradual being the operative word. The bill did not free even a single slave. It just meant that all children born to slaves from this point forward would become free on their 25th birthday. And remember, during those days, like half the population died before their fifth birthday, so not a whole lot to look forward to. What this law did do, though, was create yet another incentive for owners to free their slaves, since they knew they could only hold on to them for so long. Between 1800 and 1810, the number of slaves in New York decreased by 43% to just 1,500, making 84% of the city's black population free. Unfortunately, it's likely that a significant proportion of this came not from slaves being freed, but from slaves being sold down the river, or more accurately down the ocean, to the American South or the West Indies, where they would face far worse conditions than they had back in NYC. The state banned this practice, but it wasn't very stringently enforced. In 1801, one of the Haitian refugees, a very genteel Frenchwoman named Jean-Marfusine Polyblanc Volume Brun tried to ship 20 of her slaves down south. In response, hundreds of free blacks gathered and threatened to, quote, burn the said Volenbrun's house, murder all the white people in it, and take away a number of black slaves. Unfortunately, they were dispersed by the state militia, and the ship went south as planned, carrying its passengers to a miserable fate on the plantations of the south. Regardless, as a result of black people being both freed and shipped elsewhere, slavery became a shell of its former self by 1819. That year, the state legislature finally passed a bill declaring all remaining slaves free by July 4, 1827. When that day finally came, 
New York's black community celebrated with a parade down Broadway. They had finally made it out of slavery. But they would not be celebrating for long because just like in the South after the Civil War, newly freed black people in NYC soon found out that their opportunities to better their lives were still severely limited. Here's how one of them explained the harsh reality. What are my prospects? Shall I be a mechanic? No one will employ me. White boys won't work with me. Shall I be a merchant? No one will have me in his office. White clerks won't associate with me. Drudgery and servitude then are my prospective portion. And so drudgery and servitude it was for the majority of NYC's now free black population. Just like when they were enslaved, the majority of them still ended up working jobs serving the city's elite. The majority of black women worked as domestic servants, while lots of the men worked as butlers, waiters, or carriage drivers. Lots of other black men, possibly as many as 40%, took to the sea and became sailors. The conditions of these ships were horrendous, but the pay was decent and the racial attitudes among sailors were surprisingly egalitarian. Some black men who used to be owned by artisans were able to translate the skills they learned working under those masters into jobs of their own as free men. But this was only a very, very small minority, especially because many of New York City's craft unions made a point of keeping black people out of their industries. A significant number of black people weren't able to find any employment at all, so they were consistently a disproportionate presence in the city's almshouses. A significant number of them turned to crime. The Five Points neighborhood in today's Chinatown was the main black neighborhood and it was notorious for its poverty, filth, crime, and worst of all, race mixing between the slums black and Irish residents. Now even though slavery might have ended in New York City itself, the institution remained vitally important to the city's prosperity in an indirect sort of way. Historically, this had come in the form of the West Indian connection, but this connection declined quite a bit after the Napoleonic Wars ended because both Britain and France reimposed their protectionist policies towards the United States. The effects of this weren't quite as disastrous as people thought though because a the West Indian sugar plantations were already on the decline because of the rise of beet sugar, and B, the merchants of NYC had found a new brutal slave society to do business with. The society I'm talking about is, you guessed it, the American South. In the early 19th century, cotton replaced sugar as the white gold, and the swampy lowlands of the Deep South quickly filled up with cotton plantations. A new iteration of the triangle trade was created, as northern seaports, particularly NYC, boomed by exporting southern cotton across the Atlantic for the textile mills of cities like Manchester and Leeds. The South did have some seaports of its own, but European merchants preferred to buy the cotton in NYC because that's where they were going for all their business anyway. New York City was by now the clear commercial capital of all of North America. Thanks in large part to this commerce, New York City grew like never before. Its population skyrocketed from 150,000 in 1820 to 400,000 in 1840 to 1.2 million in 1860. 
Now almost all of this population growth came from white people, meaning that the black percentage of NYC's population declined from about 20% in 1760 to less than 2% in 1860. The fact that NYC's growth was so dependent on its connection with the South helps explain, at least partially, why the two were so closely aligned in national politics. Both the Deep South and New York City voted overwhelmingly Democrat, a party that was deeply hostile to abolitionism. Now ironically, many of the most prominent abolitionists actually lived in NYC. White people like Arthur Tappan, William Lloyd Garrison, and Charles Finney, as well as black people like Samuel Cornish and Peter Williams Jr. demanded the abolition of slavery in newspaper columns and church sermons that resonated across the country. But they were not exactly a welcome presence in NYC. In July 1834, rumors spread that the abolitionists Arthur and Lewis Tappan were holding events encouraging race mixing between black men and white women. And this, of course, set off that peculiar white obsession with the sex lives of black men. A whopping 4,000 rioters gathered to smash up houses, churches, and businesses that were known to belong to black people or abolitionists, although, remarkably, nobody was killed. The message, though, was loud and clear. Black people were not welcome in New York City. This became all the more true after the Irish potato famine when hundreds of thousands of impoverished and starving Irish immigrants poured into the growing metropolis. They displaced black people in both living space and in the job market, particularly in the once black dominated industry of domestic servants, which soon became dominated by young Irish girls. Frederick Douglass complained, quote, Every hour she's just elbowed out of some employment to make room for some newly arrived immigrant from the Emerald Isle, whose hunger and color entitle him to special favor. Since black people were the only ones below them in the social hierarchy, Irish immigrants took out all their frustrations on them. And since this was a time when many Americans considered the Irish themselves to be an inferior race, Irish Americans tried to assert their whiteness by relentlessly punching down at black people. Essentially, their way of becoming American was by being as racist as possible, which, credit where credit's due, that's not a bad strategy. The Irish also hated abolitionists because of their association with evangelical Protestantism, a movement that was not especially fond of Catholics like them. They also felt like it was hypocritical for the abolitionists, many of whom were wealthy industrialists, to worry about the fate of faraway black slaves while white men were being exploited right in their backyard. Increasingly, any abolitionists who spoke in NYC were given the old tomato to the face. Physical violence perpetrated by Irish immigrants made Manhattan increasingly unsafe for black people to live in. And the route of the Underground Railroad often intentionally avoided NYC because of how many slave catchers there were there. Turning in fugitives from slavery was a great way for poor New Yorkers to make a quick buck. Also, even though the slave trade was outlawed in 1807, many traders continued to traffic humans illegally, and New York was a center of this barbaric industry because the local government had such little interest in suppressing the trade. It's estimated that more than 400 illegal slave-carrying vessels 
passed through New York during the 19th century. So given how vitally important it was to the economy, it's no surprise that when slavery became the dominant political issue in the 1850s, New York City fell firmly on the side of the South. In the 1860 election, Abe Lincoln fared about as well in the Irish slums of Lower Manhattan as he did in the backwoods of the Deep South. But Lincoln won the election anyways, and 11 southern states quickly walked out of the Union in protest. As they watched this crisis unfold, most New Yorkers simply hoped that everyone could just calm down. They didn't want to see their lucrative business with the South disrupted by some pretentious moral crusade against slavery by some bleeding heart abolitionists. But after the attack on Fort Sumter in April 1861, New York City erupted in patriotism. Thousands immediately answered Lincoln's call for 90-day volunteers, eager to punish the traitors and get the crisis over with. As we all know though, the war ended up being longer and bloodier than anyone had anticipated. In 1863, after two years of war had bled the Union Army dry, Lincoln began using forced conscription to replace the ever-growing numbers of casualties. This meant that Irish immigrants in New York were now faced with the prospect of being sent off to die for a cause they had absolutely zero interest in. They officially lost their shit, kicking off the worst riot in all of American history. The New York City draft riots are a massive story in and of themselves, and they honestly deserve an entire episode of their own. But the long and short of it is, the Irish were furious that a bunch of rich Anglo-Saxons had turned the war into a moral crusade for abolition, which in their eyes would only bring in hordes of blacks to steal their jobs and rape their women. The rioters attacked draft offices, police stations, property belonging to prominent Republicans, bougie looking shops, and anyone who was dressed a bit too fancily. But the main targets were the homes, property, and bodies of black people. They lynched 11 of them, injured several more, and burned down the colored orphan asylum near 44th Street, which was thankfully empty at the time. A rioter named James Cassidy shouted, all you damn get out of here in five minutes, or we will burn down the house over your heads. Don't you ever show your face in this street again. And they listened. Thousands of black people fled NYC during the riots, and many decided that they never wanted to come back to that place again, especially if their homes had been destroyed and their property had been looted. The anti-war zealots spent three days destroying Manhattan before several Union regiments, fresh from their victory at Gettysburg, arrived, suppressing the riot and killing over 100 rioters. But in some ways, the rioters ended up getting what they wanted. By 1870, New York had just 11,000 black people out of a total population of 1.3 million, the lowest total since 1820. White supremacy was the order of the day in New York City. Now about those riders. What they did was obviously horrifying and inexcusable. But with a big event like this, it's always important to try to understand the context behind it. So in the next episode, that is what I'm going to attempt to do. We're going to go over 
the centuries of Irish history that led to that horrible night in July 1863. Join me next week for a trip across the Atlantic to the Emerald Isle, and then back across it to New York City.